0: Hi there, and thanks for listening to the Adulting is Easy podcast. This is Lauren, and I manage the Adulting is Easy blog and podcast at realadultingiseasy.com. And the podcast is found on like eight different platforms. So please take a second, if you can safely do so, hit the button, uh, the follow button wherever you're listening. So I'm joined today by Michael Ekman. He is the founder and lead wealth manager at Adaptive Wealth Partners. His clients include investors who are athletes, sports and entertainment professionals, business owners, and entrepreneurs. Michael's passion to help investors make better short-term financial decisions and achieve their goals started in 2010 when he lived in his car for six months while going through a rough patch in life. He knows what the bottom looks like and how to build a life that you can enjoy. Enjoy. Thanks for being here, Michael.
1: Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having us on your show.
0: Absolutely. So our goal for today is make adulting a bit easier for our listeners by discussing a personal finance topic since managing money is a big part of adulting. Today, Michael, you and I are going to discuss the three biggest mistakes investors make. Um, but before we get into that, since I hinted at it in your bio, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal finance journey?
1: Um, so my, my journey really started... When I was about 24, 24 and a half, almost 25, I had a kid. I had her mom take off to uh, another state. So I really went through a place where I didn't know what I wanted to do with life. Um, I'd been working as a personal trainer to athletes and just had listened to them talk about how much they struggled financially And I realized that that was an area of the world that could use my help. Um, So I decided that after some hard times and not knowing what to do, and like we mentioned before, living in my car for six months, I had a friend that we were sitting down at lunch one day and he said, look, you've just got to do one thing each day to make your life better. Um, And I, I really took that to heart. And the next day I woke up and I shaved for like the first time in three or four months. And from then on, I just took a little bit of of action each day to improve my life, improve those lives around me. I started working in banking, um, became licensed as an investment advisor. And then joined a larger firm and was there for six years uh, building up my skills and practice. And then last August, we launched our uh, independent firm, Adaptive Wealth Partners.
0: That's a really cool story and something that I'm sure a lot of your clients can relate to when you're talking to them. Is that right? Yeah, we, we found that
1: we try to be as... as I guess normal as possible. Financial advice and financial advisors seem to be this unreachable person that is out there and just does everything well and knows exactly what to do all the time and we've been on a journey where my wife and I and my kids we've we've seen the bottom, we've built back up, we've gone through times where you know, you, you struggle and you aren't sure where that next payment is going to come in for your bills and you just have to keep working at it and keep grinding it out each day and learn from your mistakes. And we use the mistakes that others make and the mistakes that we've made in the past to help build everyone up on their finances on our end.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. Use the mis- there's not only the, the mistakes that you make, but the mistakes that others make as well. And I also liked what you said or what your friend told you. If you can do one thing each day to make your life better, that's something that I've been reading a lot more about lately is the idea. We all know in personal finance that there's this concept of compound interest. And We actually did. Um, a podcast on that with Financial Sensei a while back. And he talked about compound interest. And that's where, you know, you take your hundred dollars and you put it in the bank and it makes 10% and you have 110, right? Everybody gets that idea. But the next year, that 110 then makes you 10% and over and over and over and on and on. But there's this idea too, where you can do that in your life and in making yourself a better person. And those steps that you take every day, no matter how small, they literally compound. And so after a while you turn around and you really look and see, wow, I've really accomplished a lot.
1: No, absolutely. And a lot of times, whether it's finance, whether it's education, whether it's figuring out what to do in the world, you look out at the, the end goal and you're not sure how to get there and you start feeling overwhelmed and then you start start really self-doubting your your opportunities and what you bring to the table so if you can break it down whether it's in life building a business or you know finishing up a class or shoot I use it all the time with my wife trying to be a better husband just try to do one thing a day that's gonna affect change and then you get that snowball rolling down that hill and eventually you find that you're most of the time surpassing your goal. But if you had tried to attack everything at one time, you wouldn't have gone anywhere.
0: Yeah, you would be paralyzed. It's like the idea of when you have so many choices, it's hard to make a decision. Like there was a study where it's like somebody had like 27 jams for sale and they didn't sell as much as when they only had three jams for sale because people then were like, all right, I'm going to pick one of these three. but when they had to pick one of 27, they couldn't even make the decision, right? So that's what it's like with your goals. If you have too many, you don't know where to get started. Whereas if you can kind of chunk it, take these little steps, you'll you'll eventually accomplish your goals. So that's awesome. I think it's great. I think definitely you're, I've talked to a bunch of financial advisors and I think you're kind of the most approachable and the most um, similar to me personally, because we're in kind of the same age group and Normally, financial advisors, they, they are also generally um, older, I think. Um, but so are their clients often. Um, but you said that's not the case. You have a lot of very young clients comparatively.
1: I do. Yeah, we. I tend to find clients that I can relate to. And I think a lot of advisors do that. I mean, the average age in my industry is, is in the 60s. So that's going to result in some needed change in the next few years as people start yeah. to retire. Um, But at the same time, we also understand that for me, it's about giving back to that opportunity where when I was 20 or early 30s, no one looked at me and said, hey, you've got, you know, an extra 5% in income every month. What are we doing with that? You know, what do you want it to do in the future? So we look at it and we say, you know, how can we affect the most change? And I, I kind of equate it to that forgotten generation where our parents went through 2001 with the market crash and the tech Mm -hmm. bubble. And then they went through 2007, 2008 with the real estate bubble. And from my generation to, you know, the 20 year olds right now, we're all sitting here and saying, Hey, we've seen what happens and the ups and the downs. We've seen the good times. We've seen the bad. We don't get enough credit for paying attention to those types of things and we definitely with the younger generation of investors doesn't get enough credit for learning from others mistakes.
0: Yes, we're seeing that right now with the with the pandemic that people are intensely aware of certainly emergency funds and and saving in general that Anything can happen, right? And we've always talked about at least me, when I think of emergency fund, it used to be like if I lost my job, like that was the emergency, or people talk about if your car breaks or whatever. We never thought of an emergency as a global pandemic, but that's something that that we are seeing, that people are literally, for the most part, actually putting more money away than they were before. And that's I think a great example of, you know, learning from either their own mistakes or mistakes that they've seen people around them make, where they they just went and went into 2020 without, without enough cash on hand, basically.
1: Absolutely. And honestly, for myself, I mean, even in the last eight, nine years that I've had my investment license, it's like pulling teeth out of clients to get them to save money because the market does so well. You feel like you want to participate, you want to invest your money, but every once in a while you have something that happens. Like you said, the car breaks down. I mean, none of us, I think looked at, the beginning of last year and said, oh, well, we're going to have an economic shutdown where we're not going to be able to do a lot of things that we would normally be able to do to generate income or money. And just the ability for people to say, hey, this, let's take this as a learning opportunity. Let's turn it around and find a reason to start putting more money away. I've had clients that have the assets to go on vacation anywhere in the world And all of a sudden they're like, Hey, I want to put more than, you know, your six months minimum in in emergency cash. And then we start separating out some other things so that we can start planning for spending instead of just spending as the money comes in.
0: Right. So um, it sounds like your client's well, obviously, I think anybody that is in their twenties and thirties and is thinking about this stuff is ahead of the curve, anyways. So and it sounds like your clients are taking a lot of steps in the right direction. But there are some things that um, some typical mistakes that you see people make.
1: No, ab- absolutely, and it's pretty common to see these mistakes. And a lot of times, when I I talk with individuals about these specific mistakes, they're not surprised that they're out there. They just haven't been told how to deal with them or it hasn't been put in a terms that they can understand. So it's very common. I mean, all of us make mistakes. I make mistakes. I mean, starting my practice, I made a pretty big mistake on signing a lease on one office and then having to to back out of that right at the beginning of this, uh, the pandemic and, and really just looking at opportunities that we have to avoid them and, and learn from them. So I mean w- with a mistake you you've got to learn not just that the mistake is there but how to deal with it how to improve your situation and you're going to look at it and say hey this mistake is a you know has a potential to be that that whole pizza that we have to eat but you have to eat it at one bite at a time right you have to start somewhere on on not making these mistakes going forward to be a good investor and and to help yourself out in the future take advantage of opportunities
0: Right. And something that's counterintuitive about being an investor is having cash that's not invested, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, for us, the biggest mistake that we see investors making is that they're not keeping the appropriate amount of emergency cash on hand. And we've seen you know, plenty of Susie Orman articles and, and uh, other people out there in the industry that, that have said, you know, we need to keep six to nine months worth of emergency cash on hand. I view that money as the unemployment line money, the money sitting in the bank, interest rates are at all time lows, it's not earning any money and it's not working for you. But there's a reason that it's there and you won't know how much you appreciate that reason that it's there until it happens. Until you need that money. So we always recommend that we have six to nine months worth of emergency cash on hand. And that's all of your expenses. You know, when people lost their job last year, it was an effect of losing the job that that brought people down and caused people to have depression. But it was also the fact that their lifestyle changed. And they weren't able to go out and take their kids to uh, ice cream on the weekend or, you know, go see, not that we saw movies, but go buy presents at birthday times and things like that. So when we look at it, we don't just say, Hey, here's your bills. You know, you have X number of dollars as your bills. We look at what you spend on an annual basis. And last year proved that point, but in a normal year, we include things like vacations and doing things that we all enjoy doing. So we take a backwards approach to, finances and and the budgeting. And instead of setting a budget, we take a look at what people are actually spending first, and then look at where we can make modifications. Because if you're trying to change it and go 180 degrees different, you're going to be in a hard position to see that through.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, there's, I don't know if that's called like reverse budgeting or Or something like that. There is kind of this term for look at what you're spending first, rather than getting this idea like I should be spending four hundred dollars a month on groceries and then trying to stick to it. Well, well, if you're spending eight hundred a month on groceries, that's going to feel really freaking painful. Um, So yeah, six to nine months of emergency savings. We certainly see that a lot. I like that you. Are mentioning, it's not just like pure monthly expenses, right? You have to really think about what kind of lifestyle do you want to have? If the worst case scenario, the worst emergency happens, you know, you lose your job, you have no income for that amount of time. Um, so that, that makes a ton of sense to me. I also will just add that when I am um, in my personal financial planning graduate certificate program at Boston University, and when We learned about emergency funds in my courses. They talked about that sometimes certain people need more and maybe sometimes certain people need less. The people that need less, I guess, would be like uh, maybe me and my husband, two-income household, um, can live off of what just one of us makes, right? In that case, then maybe we don't need as much an emergency fund. Um, But some people need more. Like what if my husband and I worked for, you know, in the same industry or even worse in the same company? right if something happens to that company then you know you could both be in a situation where you are unemployed or people with children should have more would you say that all of those things that i learned in my my classes is is pretty spot on or would you disagree um
1: i think that you you're spot on with it with the if you do the backwards budgeting then you kind of account for that a little bit but you always have more. I mean, some clients that I have that are are older that are on social security, you know, they're like, "Well, I get this every month." And I'm like, "Well, what if the government decides to not send out that check that month?" Um, so I always think that that having more is better, but we don't want to have so much that we're missing out on opportunities to make money elsewhere, whether it's in in real estate, investments, in business or just investments. Like we could normally talk about in, in the stock market or, or mutual funds, those types of things.
0: Right. So that the first mistake that you see is not having enough emergency cash. But the second mistake that you see is people not being in a position to take advantage of the market.
1: Right. And the way that we, we handle that is we actually create what we call our extra spare tire fund. Um, I don't know anyone else that has this kind of luck, but I have a newer car that doesn't have a spare tire. And then when I got a flat tire, so I had to call my brother to come pick us up and take me to go get it, get it changed. And then I got back to the car, put everything back on the car and realized the other tire was going flat too. So that's where we came up with this idea that you need an extra spare tire fund that allows you to take advantage of opportunities. And that extra spare tire fund is really just a dollar amount that's equal to your emergency cash, but it's earmarked to take advantage of opportunities in the market or opportunities in business, or let's say you even wanted to invest in something on your own. You know, you needed a down payment on a rental home or you had a business opportunity that you needed to go into. So when we look at, at investments, it's not always just those conventional stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and ETFs. We're looking at how to generate income for clients going into the future.
0: What, um, would you say that real estate is a big part of what people end up using their extra spare tire fund? Is there any pattern that you see? Um, what we... There's not
1: much of a pattern because generally if you're disciplined enough to have the appropriate amount of emergency cash and extra money on the sidelines to take advantage of opportunities, you're you're at that point pretty money conscious. So you generally have an idea that you're. I know that there's going to be extra savings out there for the most part, but every once in a while you get an opportunity to to put some money into a, a real estate project or into a home. I've got a client that's he's 19 now. Um, Mom and dad are kind of moving out on him and wanting to go (laughs) live somewhere else. And he's like, well, I'll keep the house and we'll rent it out, but it's an expensive house. So we sat down and we were looking at, you know, his finances and he's like, what if I rent? And I was like, well, what if you bought and rented to three of your friends and you lived in that house? He's like, I probably wouldn't have a house payment. Pretty accurate. So we look at it as that opportunity money. I think real estate is an important piece to it because you're able to generate monthly income and at the same time have growth out of it. But you've also got to account when we start talking about real estate. Uh, We own two rental properties in North Carolina and every once in a while, one of them is empty. So you've got to account for extra expenses. And those are some of those things that we Look at on the cash flow and the investment side is really making sure that we've dotted our eyes and crossed our t's for things that come up. I mean, we had a hurricane a couple of years ago and it blew down a fence. Uh, we had yep. money in the opportunity in the extra spare tire fund to take advantage of the opportunity, put a nicer fence in. Yep. So you can always find something out there to be positive about and an opportunity to take advantage of. You know, like. I mean, shoot, right now I could think of, you know, interest rates being low. Maybe that opportunity is to go out and buy a new car with that money and then we'll refill it with the next couple of paychecks. So ha- not having as many bills and, ha- and taking advantage of that opportunity when it presents itself, uh, I think is super important for finances, but there's also no limit to what that opportunity necessarily is. It's only your imagination.
0: Do you have your clients put those funds in two different places?
1: The extra uh, the extra spare tire fund and the emergency cash I separate. Yeah. The I'm I'm a firm believer that as a financial advisor, I want my clients to have their emergency cash in the bank because if I'm not available on the weekends or I'm in the middle of meetings and they need money, they know where it's at. They don't have to make a call to to get access to it. They can write a check. They can use their debit card. They can transfer the money. They can do a wire transfer and just take care of the immediate emergency. Um, We use our, our extra spare tire generally is in the investment portfolio. We have a fund set aside for that. Normally, it's like a money market fund. Historically, we have a little bit higher rates than we do right now. So that's been beneficial to have a little bit of extra earnings versus what's in the bank. But we try to separate them. The reason that I don't do the emergency cash in the investment account um, is really because most of my clients pay me a fee to manage their money. And if it's sitting there not doing anything, there's no reason to pay me the fee. Right. So I see far too often you get an advisor that says, no, send me that you know, 10, 15, $20,000 that's sitting in the bank, because he's going to make money off of it. And that just blows my
0: mind to a certain extent.
1: But it's just not the way that I operate as an advisor.
0: Right, right. I hear that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so real estate market, also the stock market, right? There might be some stock market opportunity that people could use their extra spare tire fund for car. Um, anything else? Any other options there?
1: I mean, business opportunities. If I had been more financially intelligent when I was in my twenties, I would have seen a lot of business opportunities that I didn't take advantage of. And in today's world, there's no limit to what can happen in business. I mean, you can literally launch a business on Amazon from your couch and never go outside of your home. Um, There's podcasting, there's uh, streaming events, there's thing all, there's no limit to what the opportunity is for people to earn money nowadays. It's no longer this world that our parents were growing up in where you had to have a job, you had to have a nine to five in order to make money. And that's a great thing. But it's also a scary thing, because you're like, well, I lo- look back and I missed out on opportunities. But now I'm in a better spot financially, I could take advantage of those now. So Try not to look back at them, but at the same time, there are those business opportunities. There are vacation opportunities. Um, When the pandemic started, we've bought a couple cruise trips and vacation trips just because the cost is less. Right. So if I'm going to spend the money in the future, I might as well buy it when it's on sale. And then I'm not in a position to where where I'm not taking advantage of what's going on in the world.
0: So, yeah, yeah, we uh, we bought a camper. We're like, okay, yeah. if we're not gonna be able to fly anywhere for a while, we'll at least drive around,
1: right? And it gives you choices.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: being able to be in a position to make choices in your life, I think, is what we all work for, and th- that's a benefit to everyone. I mean, when you have a choice on what you're gonna do in the future, or if you're gonna stay at your company, or know that you have extra money available to to make a change. Um, You know, I equate it kind of to my athletes that hold out for a better contract. And as a sports aficionado that loves all kinds of sports, I hate when athletes sit out because of a contract deal, but I also understand it as a financial advisor that people are trying to use a limited career. You know, the NFL has three and a half years as their average career span, and they only have a certain amount of time to make as much money as possible. And that kind of is the same thing with us as what I would call your your everyday investors is that there's opportunities out there that we can take a look at. And when you have the cash available to to make that decision that's going to benefit you or benefit your family, there's no stopping you. You get that sense of of wonder and you start moving forward.
0: That's a good point too. The opportunity like, hey, if you really start hating your job or something and you have your extra spare tire fund, you can, you don't have to be there, right? right? Options, choices, choices in your investments, choices in what you drive, choices in your vacations, choices in your job. Absolutely love that.
1: Yeah. And then what another thing that we kind of add to that is being able to strategically take advantage of the opportunities, right? So when, what we mean by that is on the investment side, when the market's down 10%, We take 10% of that extra spare tire fund and put it into the investment portfolio. So what we found is that it takes the emotion out of the investment side, right? You're always, every time I talk to a client and the market's down, they're like, okay, well, is it at the bottom? The New York Stock Exchange stopped taking my calls a long time ago and we're not having the conversation from an island. So I have no idea. Let's invest wisely. Let's put some money into the portfolio as it comes down. Let's buy investments on the way down so that when we get to the bottom we're in a good position to come back up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Makes that makes a lot of sense, especially if it's automatic like that. No, like, hey, no, remember what we talked about? <laughs> we're going to do t- we're going to put 10% in if it goes 10% down and went 10% down. I don't know if it's at the bottom or not, but this is the plan.
1: <laughs> yeah, and we can go as far as 40% down. I mean, the odds Mm -hmm. in the last 70 years, we've seen three downturns of 40% or more. If we look at 10% downturns, we've had 38 in the last 70 years. So you're far more likely to see a 10% downturn and the ability to take advantage of that opportunity just does wonders, not necessarily for now. And this is the hardest thing to relate to younger individuals that are investing. They're like, well, my... $10,000 that I have saved up or my $5,000 or my thousand dollars that I've saved up over a a 10 year period, if I'm earning 7.2%, we're going to double that money. Well, that's not the real answer. The real answer is when you're 50 to 60 and you get one additional doubling at a hundred thousand or 200,000 or a million dollars, that's what we have to look at on that side is that end of the goal, end of the end of the field. We've got to take a look at that and say, hey, if we can double that end piece by investing earlier and just putting a little bit away, we're going to do really well in retirement.
0: Yep. So those are the kind of the first two mistakes that we talked about. The third one is interesting. And I haven't you know, done a lot of research on this or talked to a lot of people about it, but Um, you have, um, you think people listen maybe a little too much to media out there.
1: To, to a certain extent. Yes. Um, anytime there's something negative in the news, I mean, if you think about a 30 minute or an hour news segment, how much percentage wise of that segment is about bad things that have happened out there in the world?
0: Like 27 out of 30 minutes
1: generally yeah i mean that's i think that's why sports center does their last two or three minutes of top tens <laughs> but the media knows that based on studies scientific studies that, that have been done that us as human beings we have a tendency to focus on the negative negative. and when they're putting out negative news that means we have a tendency to watch the news more or stay tuned into the news, or keep it on that channel. And when they we do that as consumers of the media, they end up with higher ratings, which means that their ad revenue goes up and they make more money. So there's not really a reason to be very positive about the news because you're going to say, hey, the world is great, we're good, nothing to check in on, let's leave. I mean, I had this saying that Jim Cramer is never once on his show Mad Money told anyone there's nothing to do in the market today.
0: Right? There's always something that you've got to sell because it's going to be it's going to blow up immediately or something. Right.
1: You got to sell something today, you got to buy something today. Well, that's not necessarily investing. That's trading. And when you pick one side or the other, you, and you're a trader on things you have a tendency to get hurt half the time. I mean, you look at everyone that bought GameStop on the way up and thank goodness we've seen a little bit of a, of, of a setback to where we can have clients sell some of those holdings if they went out there and did stuff on their own to buy in. But there's a lot of people out there that bought shares at two, $300 right. that are left holding the bag on it. And that, that was based off of, positive news everyone's got that euphoria of it's going to yep. go it's going to keep moving but i'm a firm believer that no matter which media channel you listen to it has a significant effect on your ability to to build wealth and if you're always focusing on the negative of i mean i don't know remember how often i've seen in the last 12 months that the market was going to crash right and we had one of the quickest comebacks from a 30% drop in history, Yep. but I look get messages across the top of my phone all day long and we're inundated with media and technology and it's great when it's good, but when it's not, it can be a bad thing for you. You can make poor decisions with it. And I saw a couple months back that the the S&P 500 was crashing and I pulled up the chart and it was down like, half a percent to 1% that day. Right. Right. And I was like, well, that's not really a crash. That's more of normal volatility with as much movement as we have going on in the market. But if I had listened to the, to the media, I would have called my financial advisor and was, would have been more likely to make trades that didn't help me out in the future and exit positions that for the most part would go up in, in, in. The near future instead of just listening to the short mistakes. I mean, I'm a big believer that, and based on the research, we know that in a four-year period, we're going to have three years that are up and one year that's down. And that one year that's down is the, the year that you make the worst mistakes because you fire a financial advisor that's doing their job. You sell the investments at the bottom of the market. I mean, I, when you were, you know, going through two thousand seven, two thousand eight, did you hear anyone that were like, "Oh, I sold all my four hundred one k holdings"? I mean, we see it all the time that that people have done that, and then they now that the market's back towards all time highs, they're ready to buy back in.
0: I know that happens all the time. I mean, we saw that for sure in March of twenty twenty, where people were like, "Yeah, I am getting out," and I am like, "Well, when?" When in the world are you planning on getting back in? Because if you didn't get get back in in like the next three weeks, that was it. If we haven't been down below those numbers since then. And I saw the same thing just like you, Michael. I think it was like in the last couple of weeks on Twitter, somebody was like hashtagging like stock market crash. And I was like, oh, geez, like are we flipping circuit breakers? Like what's happening? And it was like down 2%.
1: Right. Like when, when you actually take a step back and you start analyzing what's being put out there, you're like, okay, that's not that bad. Yes. We don't like down days in the market, but down days in the market, let us take advantage of it. So that we have the up days.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We put, um, I guess, you know, my husband and I, we have sort of have the extra spare tire fund. Um, I don't remember when we did it, but we put maybe, maybe 10, 10 grand, I think, in, uh, in the money market in our Vanguard account. And so every time the market dips more than one and a half percent, we throw a grand in, you know? Like,
1: yeah, <laughs> and that's a great move. The, the thing that you guys have done that I wish a lot more investors would do is have a plan for how you're going to get invested.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it, it does take the logic out of it and what I like about it, especially because, you know, I'm 31. My husband's 28. Like we're young. It makes you feel kind of excited when it goes down a little bit you're like yes let's buy you know
1: yeah absolutely and it, it it takes the mental i mean my wife this is how we came up with this my wife would always know when the market was down 10 15 20 because i'd come home and be like i don't know where it's going i mean i as a financial advisor have those feelings that that you know stomach wrenching like did I make a wrong choice? Am I doing the wrong thing? How do we make the right choice? Yeah. And every time I would go to her and she would have that that conversation with me, she'd be like, "Okay, here's a check. Go put it in the investment account." I'm like, "Okay, now I can you know work together to put words to what we do to be financially successful." And you do, you start looking forward to that. I mean, a couple months ago, my wife was like, what would you want the market to do? And I'm like, well, if the market had a 20% drop, I wouldn't complain about it because all of our clients are prepared for it. And like you say, instead of being fearful of it going down and being afraid of you're losing it all, it really does change that mindset to, okay, now I'm involved. Now I'm buying in. And when you're being positive about something, you can't be negative at the same time.
0: Yeah, because you literally, you take that moment away from, I just lost 2% of my portfolio to I'm going to make money. This is an opportunity for me to grow my wealth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that mindset takes a little bit to, to adjust to and takes a little bit to learn and develop. But once you develop it, it basically sets you free on what's going on out there in the media, what's going on in the market. I mean you're prepared for it. You've, you've done the plan and now you just have to execute on the plan.
0: Yeah. And that's why I like, um, that's one thing that I think financial advisors, I mean, you guys offer a lot of really good information, a lot of education, a lot of coaching. I'm sure I don't have a financial advisor right now. I've talked about it on the podcast. I interviewed a few, but I I didn't feel like any could do better than what I'm doing currently. Um, but there are some people that, and, and I found out that I'm not one of these people in March. You know, before March, I always kind of wondered, what am I going to do when my portfolio takes a first big hit? Right? Because yeah. <laughs> in 2008, I was 18. Okay, I don't, I don't feel bad telling anybody I didn't have any stocks in 2018. I didn't own any real estate. I mean, 2008, I didn't own any real estate. So, you know, this was I. I you know, what's coming? Logically, you know, it's coming. And I, I was like, and when March hit, I didn't feel. I felt nothing. It felt like of course it's happening. This was expected. Right. But some people don't have that reaction. And I think it's in a lot of ways important to know which kind of person are you. And if you're the kind of person that does get emotional, does get upset, some people just are. No matter how logical they are, they feel that deeper than others. And that's, I think, a huge benefit of having a financial advisor, because there's one step between you and a, and a big mistake. Someone You at least have to, I would assume, have a conversation with you and explain why they're going against every rule or, or the scope of your engagement or whatever you guys have laid out decide upon. Yeah. It's,
1: I mean, you're never going to stop everyone from sure calling. I mean, in 2015 in, in into 16, we had a little bit of a pullback in the market when I was just starting with a new company. And so I had newer clients that hadn't experienced that before. And I probably had 20 to 30% of my clients and they were older at that time. They were, right. you know, mostly retired individuals. And I had like I said, probably 20, 30 percent easily call me and say, hey, the market's down 15%, get me out. And we had conversations about the future and what that would look like and how often we soon downturns. And they, for the most part, all bought into it. And since then, I've probably had one or two clients every time we have a pullback like we had last year. Um and I mean, some of them are really smart. Some of them yeah. are, are professors and, you know, business owners. And it's just that fear gets a hold of them. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we do isn't necessarily, you know, when the market's screaming towards all-time highs, like I equate it to throwing a dart at the balloons on the wall. Like if you hit one, you're good. It's not, it's going to go up for the most part. Yeah. But when the market's having a pullback, that's where I start earning my money. That's where I start going to work. And honestly, that's where we grow. My practice the most is by bringing on clients and downturns. Um, but there's a lot of good financial advisors out there that do really quality work. And you just have to find one that fits with you, your family, your personality, that can understand where you're at, what your goals are, and you have that trust built in that I mean, you know that they're going to do what's best for you. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you tell them yes all the time, because as a financial advisor, a client that tells me yes all the time, I don't learn anything about. Right. When someone tells me no, then I start learning, okay, this is their boundary on how much cash or how much risk we want to use. This is what types of investments they're comfortable with. So you want someone that that has that two-way street of communication back and forth that, that can understand you, but at the same time, you understand them. And I equate it to kind of opening my playbook when I start with a client. Like, I don't mind giving you the playbook. I'm going to run it better than you will probably on your own, but right. I want you to know what I'm about and what my mindset is and how I've taken the things that I've learned in the past and how I'm helping people not make the mistakes that I've made. But it's also okay to make those mistakes. It's okay to go out and spend money on things that you're like, later you're like, why did I buy that? Well, sometimes you need to have those lessons. Sometimes you need to go through that time and space. And I think as a financial advisor, the the best thing that I can do is give quality advice and help you see the benefit of that advice.
0: Yes. And just because someone gets emotional, about finances when bad things happen does not mean they're dumb they can be a very smart person i have a friend of mine she pulled i think ninety thousand dollars out of the stock market in 2015 and she bought back in in 2021
1: right and you know, she missed like, out you, on like, 35 40 return
0: think about all of that and i mean okay so she missed out on the you know all of you know the trump bump and everything that happened around then but what about what if she would have put it all in, in march of 2020 right So, um, that's the thing about, you know, you can be very smart and you can be for the most part logical, but you need, like you said, a partner who can help you think even more logically. And she'll call me sometimes and, you know, ask me things. And and I've had to even kind of say to her at times, you don't listen to me. I can tell you the right thing, but you're going to do what you want. Anyways, there's nothing I can do to stop you. Absolutely. (laughs) And that's part
1: of knowing the clients, right? So there's some clients that I just talk about the plan we just talk about the mm-hmm. emergency cash we just talk about the opportunity fund and that extra spare tire fund we talk about how we stress test the portfolio using the 2000 acid test to really go back and look over the last 20 years what your money would do or what a portfolio would do i mean most people don't know when i when i go into that presentation with a client that you know, Vanguard has the the biggest fund in the world, the SP 500 fund. When you look at their ETF and their mutual fund, but if you take a million dollars and you put that money in there in January first of 2020 or 20 sorry 2000, and you take out fifty thousand the first year, which is five percent, and you adjust it for three and a half percent inflation, you run out of money midway through 2016. Wow! And It's simply because some funds are designed to do well in ups and downs and some funds are not. And for us, that Vanguard fund is just one that we don't use because of that ability. We want people to draw income. I mean, investments are great to grow dollar amounts, but it's what you can buy with those dollars. It's what you can buy with the income off of the investments, whether it's real estate, whether it's a business, whether it's a stock bond or mutual fund. It's what you can do with that money to improve your life and improve the lives of those that are you care about and those that are around you.
0: Absolutely. And that's why I like personal finance as a topic to learn about. That's why I like talking about it. That's why I'm doing this podcast. Because learning a few different things and partnering with the right people and understanding personal finance, you really can change your literally your whole life and you can have a whole better life just from knowing a few things, I think. Um, so is there anything you, else you want to say before we wrap it up? Um,
1: just my, my thought is that every one of us is on a financial journey and how you choose to really participate in that journey influences your ability to achieve your goals. And it, it's not just the financial ones. A lot of times it's the ability to do the things that you want to do in the future.
0: Yeah, that's profound. I love that. So managing money is a huge part of adulting, as we say every time on this podcast. And part of that means tuning out some of the negatives in the media and also being in a position to take advantage of opportunities as they come up. So, Michael, would you like to tell listeners how they can get in touch with you? Of course. So the listeners can
1: follow me on Twitter at AWP advisor or they can go to Athlete Wealth Guide and download our free wealth building guide um, and have access to that as a PDF form anytime they want.
0: Perfect. Thank you. I'll put that information in the show notes. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at adulting is easy. I'm also on Facebook. You can email me at realadultingiseasy at gmail.com or show support at patreon.com slash adulting is easy. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Hopefully we've made adulting a little easier for you.